1998, two academics published a paper. It was called The Extended Mind, and it opened with a deceptively simple question. Where does the mind stop and the rest of the world begin? If your immediate response is something like, well, my mind is inside my head, it's inside my brain, and the world is, well, the world is everything else. If that's your response, then you'd be in good company. Plenty of philosophers and neuroscientists and psychologists would agree with you. But the authors of that paper, and just to give credit where credit is due, it was written by the philosopher Andy Clark and the cognitive scientist David Chalmers, they would not agree with you. They argued that human cognition had become increasingly entangled with technology. Things like computers weren't just tools our minds made use of, not at all. These tools had become an integral part of our minds and how we think. And the paper didn't stop there. It also explored how the mind extends through our bodies, our environments, and our social relationships. These arguments sparked a lively debate within the fields of philosophy and neuroscience and psychology. But since then, the extended mind theory has found its way into many different fields. And today, remember this paper was published more than 20 years ago, there's a growing body of research that seems to confirm its thesis. My name's Brian, and I'm from Blinkist. In these blinks to the extended mind by Annie Murphy Paul, I'm going to guide you through some of this research and what it has to say about the human mind and how we do some of our best thinking. By the end of these blinks, I hope you'll see both your own mind and the minds of others in a new light. Okay, let's get into it. This is the sound of a Wall Street trading floor. You'll have to imagine it full of people swarming around like bees in a field of monitors, frantically shouting sales orders into multiple telephones. Okay, my idea of a trading floor might be hopelessly dated. I'm not a finance person. But the point is, it's loud. And it's intense. It's a challenging environment for a human brain. In the middle of this mayhem is a man named John Coates. He's been a trader for many years, and during this time, he's noticed something. The traders raking in the most cash don't seem to be the analysis hounds or the data crunchers. The best traders aren't the ones with the best educations or even the best ideas. The most successful traders seem to be the ones who know how, in key moments, to listen to their gut. Now, Coates, who came to Wall Street with a PhD in mathematics from Cambridge and who definitely knows a thing or two about data crunching and complex data analysis, has noticed the same thing with his own trades. Often, what on paper seems like a perfect trade, well-reasoned, logically solid, perfectly executed, fails miserably. It doesn't make any sense. At other times, and this is even stranger, he will have a sudden feeling, a momentary glitch in his consciousness that shows him, in his own somewhat mystical words, another path 
into the future. And when he follows this feeling, sometimes even against his better judgment, he's often rewarded. It's as if his body is somehow one step ahead of him, and all he needs to do is listen. Eventually, Coates became so fascinated by this phenomenon that he decided to leave Wall Street and return to Cambridge to become a physiologist and a neuroscientist. Since then, he's done research that suggests that his observation on the Wall Street trading floor was correct, that being in tune with your own body can actually make you smarter. This all sounds pretty wild, so here's the science in a nutshell. Our senses are always active, and they take in an ocean of data that never enters our consciousness. But that doesn't mean that this data is lost. It's not. It's processed subconsciously by our brain. And when our subconscious mind notices patterns in this data, our body alerts us through sensations generated in our organs, bones, and muscles. If we're attuned to these signals, recognizing such a pattern around us might come with a slight speeding of the heart or a twitch in the stomach. This physical subconscious process is called embodied cognition, and our receptivity to it is called interoception. In 2016, Coates found that traders' success closely correlated with their ability to accurately detect the beats of their own hearts. In other words, traders with greater sensitivity to signals coming from their own bodies made more money than their less sensitive colleagues. On the trading floor where opportunities vanish in a split second, access to this embodied cognition gave them an edge. But interoception isn't just valuable when trading stocks. It can give you an edge in a lot of areas. And here's the good news. It's a skill that you can easily practice and become better at. One simple and surprisingly effective way to do so is through an exercise called a mindfulness body scan. The idea is pretty simple. You sit down somewhere quiet, you close your eyes, and you take a few deep breaths. Then you slowly move your awareness over your body, focusing on one body part at a time, all the way from your toes to the top of your head noticing any sensations or feelings along the way. At the very end of these blinks, as a little bonus, I'm going to walk you through one of these body scans. So if that sounds like something you'd like to do, please stick around. Okay, so we've learned that our bodies can store and process subconscious information, and that we can tap into it by increasing our awareness of subtle bodily cues. Here's something else, something you might be pleased to learn. You don't have to wait around for subconscious information to rise into your awareness to give your cognition a boost. There's a far simpler way to access this information. By moving your body. A study by the radiologist Jeff Fiddler shows this in action. The study compared the performance of two groups of radiologists examining the same X-ray images. The first group were seated at their desks, and the second examined the images while they were walking on a treadmill. Okay, so the seated physicians caught about 85% of the irregularities in the images, but the physicians on the treadmills, well, they caught 99%. So what exactly is going on here? Why would movement have this effect on the mind? 
Well, the answer is probably buried deep in our ancestral past. Life for our early ancestors on the African savanna was one long journey after another. In order to find food and water and to stay out of danger, they had to constantly be on the move. For them, thinking meant having heightened recall, an eye to subtle signs of danger in the environment, and the ability to make quick decisions, all of which were deeply connected to motion. This is what their brains evolved to help them with. Okay, back to the modern world and those radiologists on the treadmills. The reason they outperformed their colleagues probably came down to the fact that the acuity of our visual system heightens when we move forward, exploring an environment. In short, we become better at seeing things around us when we're walking. While few of us today hunt for food or have to be constantly looking over our shoulders for sudden dangers in our environment, we still carry the same neural makeup as our earliest ancestors. And, as this example shows, our minds can still benefit from it. But there are other interesting connections between movement and the mind as well. For instance, when learning new things... Making movements that match a concept has been shown to forge more durable neural pathways in the brain. A good example of this is children learning addition through hopscotch. Making our movements imaginative and dramatic can also help us come up with novel solutions to a problem. Jonas Salk, the creator of the polio vaccine, famously used to move about in his lab while imagining that he was a virus attacking an immune system, or that he was an immune system attacking a virus. Now, you don't have to resort to hopscotch whenever you're learning something new or stage imagined battles like Salk when you're trying to solve a problem. But as we'll explore next, you can give your thinking a boost with something as small as a gesture. Christian Heath, a communications researcher, collects tapes of people interacting. He's filmed and studied hundreds of interactions, and he's come to pay special attention to a particular body part, the hands. In one interaction, a doctor has prescribed a patient an anti-inflammatory drug. To explain the medication, he gestures downward three times. The patient nods, signaling that she understands even before the word inflammation has passed the doctor's lips. The patient, in turn, wants to tell the doctor that she's overwhelmed with bills, and she begins moving both hands in circles. But before she can say that the bills have her going round and round, the doctor begins nodding in sympathy. Heath and others doing similar research have come to a simple and powerful conclusion. In thought and in communication, hands precede words. This concept, known as gestural foreshadowing, makes a lot of sense. After all, long before you learned to speak, you conveyed your needs and feelings through gestures. If you have kids, you'll know all about this. According to linguists, your distant ancestor's first language was likely a language of the hands. 
So here's some more practical advice on how to tap into your extended mind. Next time you're speaking to someone, let yourself really gesture. Don't hold back. As your hands fly about, you'll likely notice that they will either mime the meaning you seek to express, or they'll act as markers of emphasis, pointing, underlining, highlighting. I'm all alone here in this recording booth, but you should see all the gestures I'm making right now as I speak. You'll also notice that your gestures often arrive at an idea before your conscious mind has found the right word for it. This is gestural foreshadowing in action. Which brings us to the most interesting part, which is this. By scouting ahead within your thoughts, your hands actually unburden your brain of some of its cognitive work, allowing your thoughts to move along even faster. In other words, through gesturing, you can speed up your thinking. Of course, there are other benefits to using gestures, too. They help make the abstract physical and more comprehensible to your audience, who, like you, also speak the language of hands and are ready to receive your message in both words and gestures. Okay, we've covered a lot of information, so let's just do a quick recap of some of the key ideas and concepts that we've gone over so far. First up, embodied cognition. So this is the subconscious ability of your body to pick up patterns in the information coming in through your senses, interpret that information, and then generate signals in your body that you might experience as physical sensations. All right. Next, there's interoception. This is quite simply the activity of listening to these signals. It's that gut feeling that gives some traders an edge on the trading floor. Okay, then there's this nifty concept. You can give your cognition a boost by moving your body. Remember those radiologists on the treadmills who outperformed their seated colleagues? Yeah, exactly. And last, we learned about gestural foreshadowing which is just another way of saying that when we communicate with others, our hands have often already delivered the message before the words exit our mouth. The important point is that gestures not only improve communication, they can even ease your cognitive load and make you think faster. Okay, that was it for the mind and the body. Now it's time to follow the extended mind one step further and out into the world. We'll start in 1940s New York. In the early 1940s, Jackson Pollock couldn't get his abstract paintings into the galleries of New York City. Worse, he struggled with depressive exhaustion and alcohol abuse. So in 1945, he and his wife, the artist Lee Krasner, made an important decision. They left Manhattan for a rundown farmhouse on Long Island. From their new home, Pollock would look out on green fields and marshes. He'd watch the light fall through the trees. He'd taste the salt air sweeping in from Long Island Sound. Then he'd retreat into a barn that he'd converted into a studio. And there, he tapped into something larger than himself, 
and created paintings unlike any that had ever been seen before. Paintings that were at once serene and wild. The restorative power of nature, and of trees in particular, is the kind of common wisdom that's also backed up by an increasing amount of empirical evidence. A view of trees from a hospital room, for example, has been shown to reduce patients' need for painkillers. And a walk through a wooded park, as opposed to a walk down an urban street, correlates with a decline in negative thoughts among people with depression. But nature's effect goes beyond relieving distress. As it turns out, being in nature can also give your cognition a boost. Researchers from the University of Chicago found that study participants who took a stroll through an arboretum, and that's just a fancy word for a place where a lot of different trees have been grown, so people who walked through an arboretum scored 20% higher on a working memory test than participants who made a circuit through city streets. So why is that? Well, nature's effect on our cognition may have something to do with its simultaneously busy and soothing visual field. It confronts the eye with a complex interplay of layers and light, and yet that complexity tends to form patterns. Think of fern leaves, ripples in water, or mountains in a range. Shapes within nature repeat, growing or diminishing in scale. Another study found that exposure to these natural occurring, repeating patterns, also known as fractals, sharpens our ability to navigate and judge distance. Which brings us back to Pollock and his paintings. Perhaps the breakthrough he experienced after moving to Long Island came down to experiencing the enlivening effect of nature's patterns. Inspired and liberated by the natural environment around him, he filled his landscape-sized canvases with fractals of splattered paint. But there's something else that may have caused this change in Pollock. Gazing out on Long Island Sound, gazing at this vast, wild piece of water, he may have felt a particular emotion. A feeling of awe. Awe opens the mind. Think of that particular brand of astonishment you feel when looking at, say, a big mountain or a deep canyon or really any large, impressive piece of nature. It's a feeling akin to joy, but it's tinged with fear. It's a sensation of insignificance, but also of possibility, and these feelings are all mingled and mixed together. And this feeling, this feeling of awe, seems to have a mind-opening effect. According to research by Dr. Keltner, a psychologist at UC Berkeley, feelings of awe correlate with a drop in our dependence on preconceived notions. But that doesn't mean that nature is good for all kinds of thought. Sometimes you need a nest, something a little bit cozier. You need a refuge from nature. Let's stay on Long Island for just a little while longer and follow Pollock into his barn-turned-studio. After all, it was here, in his studio, that he painted his most famous paintings. He wasn't out in the fields with his brush. He was here, inside, in the refuge of his studio. 
Pollock's studio was full of his paints and jugs of turpentine, sticks that he had collected, and, of course, his brushes and his painting knives. And everything was arranged just so, in an order that reflected his highly personal needs. His canvases, in various states of completion, covered much of the walls around him. The door was closed, and the life of the village, not to mention the bustle of New York City, was far, far away. In short, Pollock's studio was undeniably his own. And this is important. His studio cultivated a sense of privacy and ownership. And this is precisely the sort of environment that's most conducive to sustained creative and analytical thought. There's one study in particular, by yet again some more psychologists, that confirms this. Craig Knight and Alec Haslam, the psychologists, exposed participants to four types of office environments that differed in the amount of control the participants had over the space. Far and away, the highest gains in productivity and well-being came from an office that gave workers total freedom to decorate and arrange as they pleased. In short, a sense of ownership improved people's work. Other research into office spaces has shown that a sense of privacy, so for instance, having a door on your office and control over who enters, empowers workers, which in turn encourages creativity. These findings do not bode well for the open office plan that became popular toward the end of the 20th century. In fact, evidence suggests that an office without walls and where the workers have less autonomy depletes concentration, erodes trust, and inhibits creative thought. So bad, bad, and more bad. As many office workers can tell you, reading and writing with conversation in earshot is exceedingly difficult. All those words flying around are competing for the same brain space, the brain space that you're trying to use to get some work done. Likewise, the human mind finds it difficult to ignore a face that enters our field of vision. This tendency has evolutionary roots. Given our social nature, we can't help but glance at the eyes of passers-by and follow their gaze for potential opportunity and also potential danger. And this constant monitoring of social information and also the sense that we too are being monitored can be exhausting. And a tired mind, an exhausted mind, resorts to canned answers, stereotypes, and lazy logic. In other words, open offices make us less intelligent. Such offices became popular in part because they're cheaper, but also because they promised to boost collaboration, which, as we'll see later, is immensely valuable to the extended mind. But first, before we look at that, we'll spend a little more time on our own spaces and how they can reflect and encourage our thought processes. I don't know if you're familiar with the American journalist Robert Caro, but the man is a living legend, and he's currently in the middle of something big. Over the last four decades, he has completed four volumes of his biography of U.S. President Lyndon Baines Johnson, to give the guy his full name. You know, Lyndon B. Johnson, the guy who signed the Civil Rights Act into law. This guy. We believe that all men are created equal. Yet many are denied equal treatment. 
We believe that all men have certain unalienable rights, yet many Americans do not enjoy those rights. So at present, Caro is about 3,500 pages into the biography. His books are full of scrupulously researched detail, and yet it all goes down as smooth as a scotch and soda made with Cuddy Sark whiskey. Which, yes, I just googled it, was Lyndon Johnson's favorite drink. The point is, though, Caro's process involves reams of research and thousands of hours of interviews, and Caro, who is 85 years old, is still hard at work on Volume 5. So how the heck does he keep track of everything, let alone weave it into a compelling story? Well, to chart a course through this ocean of material, Caro pins notes to a corkboard that spans an entire wall of his office. Then he steps back and views it as a whole. He repins new trajectories and steps back, repeating the process until the impenetrable wall of data becomes a map. Only when he has a starting point, a path, and a destination, only then does he begin to write. Caro's process comes with at least three beneficial strategies of the extended mind. First, he's offloading. In other words, he's transferring important information from his brain into his environment. He's putting it up on that corkboard and lightening his brain's cognitive burden in the process. Second, by being able to step back from the board, he enjoys something called detachment gain. So detachment gain is just a technical term for that insight, you know, that little bit of wisdom that we can sometimes get when we have some distance from our own thoughts. Third, he's taking advantage of interactivity. By turning ideas into physical objects, into notes on a corkboard, he can think not only with his brain, but also with his eyes and his hands. By his own account, Caro couldn't write his epic biographies without a map across his wall. In its raw form, the research he compiles is simply too immense and too daunting. Until he has it on the map, it simply overwhelms him. So, as we've already discussed, the talents of the human mind tend to line up with thinking that once helped us survive. Until very recently, at least in evolutionary terms, the ability to manipulate objects and navigate through our surroundings was way more effective at getting us food than being able to juggle concepts. In other words, our spatial reasoning trumps our capacity for abstraction. So you shouldn't feel any shame in relying on things to do your best thinking. Caro, after all, is frequently lauded as a genius. Okay, we've covered a lot of ground in these blinks so far. We've learned some of the ways in which the mind extends through our bodies and also through our environments. So here, in this final blink, I'm going to walk you through the last of the three areas that Clark and Chalmers explored in their extended mind paper, which is this how the mind extends through our social relationships and also through other human brains. To do that, I'm going to tell you the tale of Carl Wyman and his teaching difficulties. As far as physicists go, Carl Wyman is top of the line. 
In 2001, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics for his part in creating an extreme state of matter known as the Bose-Einstein condensate. In other words, Wyman was an excellent physicist. But as a teacher, he was often the opposite of excellent. The problem was this. No matter how hard he tried, he couldn't get his undergraduate students to think about physics the way that he himself thought about physics. Their ability to solve problems remained on a rudimentary level at best. While many of them knew a lot of physics, their thinking was rigid and narrow. When it came to coming up with their own hypotheses and ways to test them, they struggled. Wyman was at a loss. But then something hit him. It was an observation he had made about the graduate students who joined his lab to do their PhDs. So, in the beginning, they resembled the undergraduate students. That is, they knew a lot of physics, but struggled to think independently. But gradually, their thinking would transform. And suddenly, they were brimming with innovative ideas and creative ways of testing their hypotheses. So the question was, why? What had changed? Well, the PhD candidates spent a lot of time discussing and debating with each other. It was in these discussions that their own minds started generating important new angles and approaches. The way that Wyman was teaching physics to the undergraduates had none of these elements. So he decided to change things up. Instead of just giving traditional lectures, he divided his undergrads into groups and challenged them to solve a specific problem together. If they were going to find an answer, they'd have to hash it out with each other. To solve the problem, the students had to find out what the other students knew. And in compiling that knowledge, they filled in each other's gaps, occasionally taking the role of teachers, which, as any teacher can tell you, is a great way to learn a subject. The students motivated one another and kept each other focused. In the event they disagreed, they had to debate and push each other toward finding a solution. Research into this method of teaching, now commonly known as active learning, shows that it's remarkably effective, especially in the STEM fields. Not only does it increase the students' understanding of the topic, it also increases their exam scores and significantly lowers dropout rates. Maybe this shouldn't surprise us. After all, we're deeply social creatures, and it makes sense that we evolve to think together with other humans. Hello, and welcome to the Mindfulness Body Scan Exercise. This blink is entirely dedicated to a guided mindfulness body scan, which is a great way to increase your interoceptive skills, which we learned about in blink number one. So if now is not a good time, you can skip this and come back to it later if you want. But if it is a good time, let's begin. First things first, make sure you're sitting down and that you're in a comfortable position, but not so comfortable that you risk falling asleep. Okay, are you seated? Good. Now close your eyes. Take a few deep breaths. Notice how your abdomen rises as you breathe in and falls as you breathe out. Now focus your attention 
on the toes on your left foot. Notice any sensations you might have. Maybe there's a tiny tingling sensation. Maybe you feel a small itch. Now, and this might feel a bit strange at first, but try to breathe into your toes and from your toes. Stay focused just on that one spot on your toes. Now gently move your focus away from your toes to the sole of your foot and do the same thing as before. Breathe into the sole of your foot and out of the sole of your foot. Really focus on it, picking up any sensation you might feel and breathe into that sensation. Continue from the sole of your foot to your heel and repeat what we just did, breathing into your heel and out through your heel. From there, continue to your ankle. And then continue like this up your leg and up the left side of your body. And when eventually you've reached the top of your head, continue down your right side, all the way down to your toes. Okay, you've already had a taste of how slowly this should go when we were breathing into your toes and breathing into the sole of your foot. So really take the time to do this, isolating each part of your body, up your left and down your right side. You can do this exercise right now. If you'd like to do it now, then put me on pause and I'll see you in a few minutes. Okay, welcome back. If you didn't have the time to go over your whole body, don't even worry about it. Just come back to this exercise whenever you like. All right, those were the blinks to The Extended Mind by Annie Murphy-Paul. Thanks for listening. So whether you're now an extended mind convert or not, if you take away only one thing from these blinks, let it be this. Your mind is not some lone ranger inside your skull, disconnected from the rest of the world. It extends far beyond your brain, through your body, through the environment and the objects around you, and through other people. From high-frequency traders picking up on subtle bodily cues to guide their decisions, to famous artists and scientists using their environments to get creative and solve problems, to physics students developing truly independent and novel ways of thinking through interacting with other students, the human mind does its best work when it extends out of the brain and into the world. Hey, final thing before you go. If you enjoyed these blinks, or if you didn't enjoy these blinks, either way, please take a moment to rate them. To do that, just take a look at your phone. You should see a rating prompt, and it's all pretty straightforward from there. Okay, thanks again for listening, and see you in the next blink.